We continue with our series on the sixth chapter of John, often referred to as the Bread of Life chapter. Many years ago, I was at a meeting of pastors in the community that I was assigned to. And there were the usual polite smiles and chatter before the agenda commenced. Now somehow, the topic of the Eucharist was raised, and I was asked my opinion about it. And that, to me, is always a sign of the times. The tendency to reduce truth to personal opinion. I responded that when I was a Protestant, I uncritically accepted the teaching of my pastors, all of them good men who loved Jesus and the Bible, who insisted that the Eucharist was only a symbol, that the bread and wine remain bread and wine. They are merely representations nothing more. If, however, Jesus is God, as we all profess, then the bread and wine offered with Jesus' words could not possibly be mere symbols, as we moderns use that term for one thing representing another, Rather, the symbol, as the ancients used that term, is the mystery that Jesus' word has transformed bread and wine into his body and blood through the apostolic work of invoking his words in the ministry of the church that he personally established. One of the pastors privately came up to me and said, you do realize that the Bible refers to it as a symbol. I said, show me in Scripture where the Eucharist is referred to as a symbol, as we moderns use that term. I'll give you a month's salary, which ain't much. That's a hint. And I leave the Catholic Church. Well, he couldn't. The unquestioned, universal belief of Christianity for 1,500 years was that bread and wine become the body and blood of the Lord through the apostolic ministry of the church he established, obeying Jesus' command, do this in memory of me, using his words. Rejection of the Eucharist did not emerge until the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. And even some Protestants are rethinking this whole issue. Now, let's be honest. The easiest thing the Lord could have done was to use the language of symbol by saying, for my flesh is like true food, and my blood is like true drink. And no one could possibly have any objections, not then or today. It would have been a marvelous compromise. But Jesus didn't say that. He said with utter seriousness, for my flesh is 
true food, and my blood is true drink. The word used for true is alithis. Now, in many and almost all of the Eastern churches in communion with Rome and all the Orthodox churches, and very much increasing now in the Latin churches, there's the Easter greeting, or we do it here. I say, Christ is risen, and you say? All right? Now, Kathy, you're Greek Orthodox. If I said Christos Anesti, you would say? Alitos Anesti. Alitos, meaning truly he is risen. Truly means that there is no doubt, that the issue is beyond dispute. It's a fact. Now, if the crowd was right, and Jesus was the only son, and Jesus was only the son of Joseph, or the son of man only, and we heard, as we heard them claim, then his words are those of a lunatic or a terribly misguided and misdirected and befuddled spiritual leader. If, however, Jesus is the Son of God, then his words need to be taken with the absolute seriousness with which he said them. Deliberately, knowing full well the divisiveness his words would create until he returns in glory, may that be today, Jesus used the language of reality, not the modern language of symbol. And it is here, at this critical crossroad, that man is tasked to accept or reject the grace of faith. Consider that in all other cases, Jesus' word created the reality he sent it out to accomplish. To the sick, he said, be healed, and they were. To the demons, he said, leave, and they fled in terror. And to three dead people, he said, rise, and they were restored to this life. The word he spoke became real. And people could see those realities with their own eyes. If we accept that his word made real what he said in the past, one cannot logically deny that the power of his word, spoken through the ministry of the church he personally established, continues to make real what he commands us. Do this in memory of me. Because the power of his word is not diminished by the passage of time or the limitations of human understanding. The mystery Jesus commands us to celebrate cannot be perceived with the sight of one's eyes. True enough. But it can be perceived with the insight of faith. Adding emphasis on the truthfulness of his word, Jesus is recorded by the Apostle John as using a rather unusual word four times in our reading for the word eat. You find it in verses 54, 56, 57, and 58. The word that is used in the gospel is trogo. 
Trogo really means to chew, to gnaw. And what's particularly unsettling is that in this period of time, this Greek word, trogo, was never used to describe human eating. It was restricted to the eating behavior of barnyard animals, like pigs, cattle, and mules. Not only is one to have faith in the power of Jesus' word, but one must, like a barnyard animal, be focused, be absorbed, be attentive. In this case, to the mystery of who, not a what, but who we are graced to consume. Not the flesh and blood of the son of Joseph, for that indeed would be disgusting, but rather the flesh and the blood of the Son of God. As an animal takes in and grinds down its food to extract as much nourishment as it can in order to live, so too we are called to trogo, to gnaw, to chew on the holy gifts, to ravenously grind them down, to draw from them communion with Jesus, eternal life here and now, and to be transformed into the likeness of the one we are graced to receive. To the Jewish crowd, who saw Jesus as only the son of Joseph, as only a man, the Lord was teaching cannibalism, something strictly forbidden in Judaism, in the Torah, and in all rabbinical writings. In fact, Catholics and Orthodox are often accused by some of our Protestant brothers and sisters of being cannibals because we believe in the presence of Christ in Eucharist. Jesus' words were and continue to be offensive to our fallen nature. And our fallen nature kicks into high gear to creatively sanitize his words, to make them palatable, to make them a little more acceptable to our limitations. This, however, is where we confront a simple but necessary truth. It is not the task of the holy to reduce truth to fit into our limitations. Rather, it is our task under grace to allow the holy to elevate us above our limitations, to embrace and be embraced by the truth. Last week, we saw how the crowd murmured among themselves, getting frustrated with Jesus' teaching. And we learned that the word for murmuring means to utter silent and secret discontent. Now, because Jesus would not compromise and use the language of symbol, but the language of reality, the people moved from silent and sullen discontent to outright quarreling, fighting, and strife. Jesus' uncompromising word 
has become divisive and engendered intense, volatile debate and animosity within the crowd. The worst, however, was yet to come. One of the darkest moments in the life of the infant church was about to take place. It was a moment that must have pained Jesus horribly. It continues to happen today. What was it? We shall see it in next week's Gospel.